Well, we have been in a series in the Gospel of Mark for quite some time now as a church, really looking at the life of Jesus. Who is he? Uh, can we trust who he said he was and who the Bible said that he uh, was and even is now? So we, uh, this morning, are picking our story up in Mark chapter 11, and I'm going to invite Deb to come up to the front. She's going to read Mark chapter 11, verses 11 through to 25. If you have a Bible with you, feel free to turn there in your Bible and your phone. Um, otherwise, the words will uh, come up here on the screen uh, beside me. And he entered Jerusalem and went into the temple. And when he had looked around at everything, as it was already late, he went out to Bethany with the twelve. On the following day, when they came from Bethany, he was hungry. And seeing in the distance a fig tree and leaf, he went to see if he could find anything on it. When he came to it, he found nothing but leaves, for it was not the season for figs. And he said to it, May no one ever eat fruit from you again. And his disciples heard it. And they came to Jerusalem, and he entered the temple and began to drive out those who sold and those who bought in the temple. And he overturned the tables of the money changers and the seats of those who sold pigeons. And he would not allow anyone to carry anything through the temple. And he was teaching them and saying to them, Is it not written, My house shall be called a house of prayer for all the nations, but you have made it a den of robbers. And the chief priests and the scribes heard it and were were seeking a way to destroy him. For they feared him, because all the crowd was astonished at his teaching, and when, ev- and when evening came, went out of the city. As they passed by in the morning, they saw the fig tree withered away to its roots. And Peter remembered and said to them, Rabbi, look, the fig tree that you cursed has withered. And Jesus answered them, Have faith in God. Truly I say to you, whoever says to this mountain, be taken up and thrown into the sea, and does not doubt in his heart, but believes that what he says will come to pass, it will be done for him. Therefore I tell you, whatever you ask in prayer, believe that you have received it, and it will be yours. And whenever you stand praying, forgive, if you have anything against anyone, so that your Father also, who is in heaven, may forgive you your trespasses. All right. Every one of us want to follow a leader who is worth following, or leaders who are worth following. Over Christmas, I read a a really great book. It's called Leaders Eat Last. It's by a man named Simon Sinek. He's a British-American leadership uh, writer. And uh, in that book, Eaters Eat Last, this is what he has to say about leadership. He says, the true price of leadership is the willingness to place the needs of others above your own. Great leaders truly care about those that they are privileged to lead and understand that the true cost of the leadership privilege comes at the expense of of self-interest. Now, Simon Sinek, he's not writing from a faith perspective, but if you were to look at any of the great leaders throughout human history, I would argue that the one who has embodied this the most, by far, is Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ, even uh, considered by those that would not say they've placed their faith in him or have a relationship with him, would still be admired as one of the greatest leaders, if not the greatest, who has ever walked the earth. Jesus was truly a great leader, but Jesus wasn't only a great leader. Jesus is also a king, in fact, the king of kings. And last week, when we were in the earlier verses in Mark chapter 11, that's what we were looking at, is is the, the, the kingdom of Jesus coming into that ancient city of Jerusalem, and how that looked so different than what we would expect of a king coming into Jerusalem, or into any city for that matter, Jesus, King Jesus, chose to come in riding on a colt, on on a young donkey. That's how the King of Kings 
entered into Jerusalem. So a king, yes, king of kings, yes, but a king like no other. And when we give our lives to Jesus and we say, Jesus, I want you to become king of my life, the way that he sets up his kingdom in our lives often does not look the way that we would expect it to look. We might have our own ideas of what that would look like. Some people in this room can relate to that. You've given your life to Jesus, but you also know that there have been times where you've gone, man, I didn't, I didn't think that Jesus establishing his kingdom in my life, his rule in my life would look like that. Others of you have not made that decision, and we love that you're here this morning. You're thinking, well, what, what if I do this? What if I believe this, and I, and I, and I surrender my life to Jesus? What's it, what's it going to be like? What is that going to look like? Because right now there are other things that, that my trust is in, but you're saying that ultimately my trust needs to be in him. What kind of expectations can I have of, of what the kingdom of God is going to look like in my own life? And that's the very thing that I want to talk to you about this morning. Now, I remember uh, months ago... I remember being in a particularly tough time. Uh, it, was, it, was, it was a tough time, particularly in leadership. There were a few things that we were walking as a church and in my own leadership that I found very, very challenging, very stretching for me. It's also tough uh, at home. We have two young kids. I was feeling very, very tired. There were some things in our marriage that I was just thinking, I'm not being a good husband. It was just really, really a challenging time. And I remember feeling it all mounting. I remember having a, a heated conversation with Natalia, my wife. It wasn't one of my best moments at all, getting quite frustrated and just going, I'm just, I just need to leave. I just need to walk out of the house. I just need to kind of calm down and collect my thoughts a bit. I went out, and I got in the car, and, 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 and I, I turned the key, and I backed up, and I went to try to, to, to go into turn, to go out of our driveway, and I just thought, no, I just, I just need to stop, and I need to pray. I mean, this is your pastor. Your pastor decided he needed to pray. That's good, isn't it? That, that's good that you're so, so I thought, I'm just going to stop, and I'm just, I, I know right now I need to pray. And, and, and I, I opened my mouth, and, and the words that came, what came out of my mouth was, was one of the most sincere prayers I've ever prayed in my life. It, it was one of the most personal prayers that I've ever prayed in my life. It was one of the prayers that has come from the deepest place in my heart. I know you're all wondering what this prayer said. So I'm going to tell you word for word what it said. Are you ready for what my prayer was? You ready for this? This is what it was, word for word. It was, ah! That's what it was. And I felt like God said to me in that moment, okay, we're getting somewhere now. And I'll tell you, there have been so many times in my life when I can hit moments like that where I think, okay, I need to put on this very pious language, this very holy... Father, Father in heaven, hallowed be their name. I'm really annoyed right now. <laughs> you know, kind of mixing this really holy language with like the frustrations of like, you know what, God knows you better than that. God knows me better than that. And, and even in that moment, just coming and, and just, ah. Have you ever read the Psalms? Those of you that, you know, that, that have spent time in the Bible, have you ever read the Psalms? There, there are, ah, type prayers in the Psalms where David is just, he's just at his wits, and he's crying out to God. Even at times, as I cry out to you, and where are you? He is so honest in his prayer life. And friends, let's be honest here this morning. Following Jesus and having Jesus come into your life and establish his kingdom, his rule, his reign in your life means you are going to have times like that where you are thinking, ah, God, what are you doing? What are you possibly doing? We would like to think that giving our lives to Jesus, and maybe some of you were sold that initially, I don't know, but giving our lives to Jesus, then everything just smooths out. Everything in life just gets perfect from that point forward. 
But again, many in this room can attest to the fact that that is not the case. Following Jesus and having Jesus come into your life and setting up his kingdom in you can be costly. And it can be sacrificial. And for some of you, it's meant the relationships have had to change. For some of you, it's meant the career ambitions have changed. Worldviews have changed. Huge, important things in your life have changed because you've said, Jesus, you are going to be king. And Jesus has come in and he said, I would, I, I'm, I'm delighted to be your king. You are going to flourish in me, but this is going to look differently than what you might expect. The disciples would have been thinking things like this when they were witnessing uh, the events of Mark chapter 11, verses 11 to 25 that Deb read a few minutes ago. So I want to go through that, but I want to give you that backdrop of the kingdom of God not always looking the way that we think that it will look. God being quite surprising, sometimes in very frustrating ways. So let's take a look at this together, this kind of idea of, God, what in the world are you doing? The verses we're looking at this morning from Mark 11 would have left, as I said, the disciples thinking, what is going on here? Jesus, as he comes into Jerusalem in that, in that incredible entry, you know, people shouting, Hosanna, laying down their cloaks on the road in front of him, laying down palm branches, but in all of this, Jesus riding on a young donkey. You can imagine the setting, just incredible, right? Well, what does Jesus do once he gets into Jerusalem? Well, he goes to the temple. He goes to the center of worship for the Jewish nation. And not just for the Jewish nation, but where from people from other nations were able to gather as well to worship the God of the Bible, to worship Yahweh. Jesus goes there right away, and he kind of assesses things. He sees what's going on there. And then he leaves. It's evening. He goes to Bethany after that with his disciples. Bethany is about three kilometers east of Jerusalem. Jesus treated Bethany quite a bit like a, like a quieter, I mean, it's a really quiet, sleepy little place. Some scholars believe that there were no more than 20 or 30 houses there. Really, really small, sleepy place. But for Jesus, it was was a retreat place. It was a place to get away from the hustle and bustle of uh, Jerusalem. Natalia and I spent some time in Jerusalem a few years ago and being in and around the markets and, and uh, the busyness and the activity. It's, it's, it's invigorating. It's exciting. The culture is just phenomenal. But many days spent there, it, it can be tiring as it would be in any kind of major busy city that way. So Jesus goes to Bethany, spends the night there. And uh, on the way uh, there, um, sorry, on the, on the way back in the next morning, they get up quite early and they go into Jerusalem. And on the journey, this three kilometer journey into Jerusalem, Jesus is feeling hungry, likely because he got up very, very early that morning. Probably, we don't know for certain, but probably skipped breakfast and they're on the road walking and Jesus wants something to eat. So he looks over and he sees a fig tree and he goes over to the fig tree to get some figs from the fig tree and there are no figs on this fig tree. So Jesus says to this fig tree, he says, may no one ever eat fruit from you again. May no one ever eat fruit from you again. You can imagine the disciples being there. Like, I I don't know, I don't know how many of you have seen Frozen when Sven goes and he goes to talk to the trolls, right? And and, and, um, Olaf is watching this kind of all happen. And he's like, oh, hi, Sven's friends. Or is it Sven? Do I have the character right? Guys in the room, don't look at me like you've never seen Frozen. You and I both know that you have, all right? And he says, oh, well, hi, Sven's friends. And then he's kind of whispering to the other person, he's crazy. <laughs> like, he's absolutely crazy. I'd imagine the disciples are thinking, okay, Jesus has lost the plot. He's going over, he's talking to a tree, and he's, he's pronouncing a curse on this tree. What in the world is going on? I don't know if you've ever been hangry. Is that just kind of what's happening with Jesus here? He's just like really, really annoyed. That they, like, what in the world is happening here? Well, Mark in his gospel, it just goes on to the next part of the story. 
with what happens next. Jesus going into Jerusalem and then going in to the temple. Okay, what? These stories are weird. What in the world does this have to do with this? But the proximity of it in Mark's gospel, they're very, very much connected. Now, Jesus then goes in, and I'll explain that in a minute, but Jesus then goes into the temple, and it's Passover. It's when people come and they bring sacrifice uh, to the temple. One of the major, major, the most major festival in the Jewish calendar, this Passover festival where, where they're remembering what happened in, in the Exodus. Maybe some of you have seen uh, you know, Exodus, God and Kings, or one of the other films, and you know a little bit about that story. It's a celebration of what's happening then when God rescued them. And uh, Jesus goes into the temple, and he sees some things happening, probably for a second time. He probably would have seen it the night before as well, but things that do not make him happy, that do not please him. Now, before we get to explaining why that was the case, why that did not make Jesus happy, and how in the world is this all relevant for life today, I want you to understand something of what was happening at this time in the Jewish calendar. People would come and they would bring animal sacrifices to the temple. And they would bring the sacrifice to be presented before a priest. And the priest would take that animal and they would slaughter it. Now, so far this morning, some of you, maybe who are new to the even idea of of Christianity, are thinking, okay, so I get it. I think if I give my life to Jesus, I have to hate fruit and I have to hate animals. All right, That's not what we're saying here this morning. I know on the surface this can look a little bit confusing. But I want to explain why the sacrifice was necessary and still is necessary. Don't worry, we're not going to be bringing animals in at the end of the service. There's a better way, and I will tell you about that. The sacrifice is necessary because God is a holy God. The Bible teaches that God is perfect in every conceivable way, even in ways that we do not understand, that we cannot comprehend. And God is still perfect and perfectly holy in those ways as well. And God intended when he made man and woman, he intended that his relationship with them would have no interruptions, that it would have no barriers whatsoever. And he gave them one command. He said to Adam and Eve, he said, I'm placing you in this garden. You can read about it in the earliest pages of Genesis. I'm placing you in this garden. Rule over the world. I've created this for your enjoyment. The one command I give you so that you're not just automatic robots, but that you have freedom to choose whether to obey me or not in an act of love is do not eat of the fruit of this one tree. And they believed a lie from the serpent and they ate the fruit of that tree. And sin comes into the world. So then we're faced with a question. Sin coming into the world. People, and we've been doing it ever since, friends, you and I do it all the time ourselves, deciding that we know better than God. How then does a God who is loving, who wants relationship with people that he has made, you and me included, how does that God have that relationship while still being a God who is perfect and just? Who is perfect and holy in his justice? and the giving and administering of justice. See, we want God to be a God of justice. Anytime, anytime you go on the CBC website, or you watch the news, you read an article online about some horrific things happening, whether it be in our nation or around the world, we want God to be a God of justice. When we read about some of the heinous acts that are committed, we want God to come in and to say, this is not right, and I am going to intervene. We want that of a God that we worship, until... That justice comes to us until that God says, you've disobeyed me. You've gone against what I've said, and there needs to be a penalty paid for that. We're all fans of justice until justice comes to us. It's like that thing in Orange is the New Black, right? Like, we're all, we're all innocent in here. Everybody's got their story about how the law just was wrong with them. Well, you know what? When it comes to faith, we can be similar. 
But God's more clever than that. He knows that we are all guilty. No one is perfect. No one is perfectly righteous. Not even one. We've all sinned. We've all gone our own way. So then, how is it that a God who wants relationship with people and wants to count them among his family, how can he have that while still being perfect in justice? And the answer to that is the sacrifice. The answer to that is the penalty for their sin, for your sin, and for my sin, being paid by another, being paid for by another living creature so that the penalty of our sin bypasses us and is put onto someone else, or in the Old Testament case with an animal, something else. And that means that justice is still administered. God is still perfect and perfect in his justice, but he has also made a way for us to have a relationship as sinful people with a perfect and holy God. Friends, this is the gospel. This is the good news that this book talks about. And every single animal sacrifice that you read about in the Old Testament, the earlier books in this, in this Bible, the earlier chapters in this Bible, every single one of them, anytime you read about an animal sacrifice, it is all a pointer ahead to the perfect sacrifice, the perfect son of God who is also referred to as the lamb of God. His cousin, John the Baptist, says that, Behold, the lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. See, all of those other old sacrifices, they were pointers ahead. They were pointers ahead. And then Jesus comes as the ultimate sacrifice. Friends, that's why the sacrifice was necessary then. I don't want you just to hear like, man, it just seems like God just hates, he just hates animals. Like it's just clear. No, God loves people. He loves people. And he loves people more than animals. It's not that he hates animals, but he knows that for him to be a holy God and to be holy in justice, that penalty has to be paid. And it involves the shedding of blood. And then it involved the shedding of blood of animals, and then it was the shedding of the blood of his son, Jesus Christ, on the cross. That's why the sacrifice matters. So why then was Jesus so angry? (laughs) Why was Jesus so angry? Jesus goes into the temple, and he sees all this stuff happening. Why did he... Get angry. Why do we read in John's gospel that he chased animals out and he flipped over the tables of the money changers? I want to show you a photo that was taken. I took this photo from the Mount of Olives um, in Jerusalem. So this is looking down over the city um, of Jerusalem. So we'll keep this photo up from just, for just a minute. So this, this vantage point where the photo is taken from is the Mount of Olives. This is the Temple Mount that you see here. And this is the south end of the Temple Mount. Now, the Dome of the Rock, which is this, uh, this, this golden-covered dome that you see on the right side of the image, it is thought that that uh, was built on the site of what was originally the Holy of Holies in the temple, the place where only the high priest could go, and, and not just at any single time, at set times, but no one else could go in there. But then... In the construction of the temple, as you kept coming out of various stages of temple history, there were different courts. And different types of people had access to different types of courts. Now, the one most relevant for us in this story is the outermost court. And at that time, it was called the Court of the Gentiles. And it would have been out. I mean, these walls, the, the city has been, no city in the world has been, has been um, attacked and rebuilt in many ways as much as Jerusalem has. Uh, so it would have looked very different then. Please keep that in mind. But the court that we would have been talking about would have been out in the outer kind of peripheral. And Jesus goes in there, and it's just chaos. There's animals everywhere. There are money changers doing this thing. It's just absolutely chaos. 
And he's really, really angry about this. And as I said, in John's gospel, we read that Jesus takes a whip and he's whipping towards the animals to get them out, to usher them out. And he's going over to the tables of the money changers and he's flipping those. And you can imagine this extremely chaotic scene. So we need to ask the question, why did Jesus feel this way? Why did Jesus feel this way? We read in Psalm chapter 69, verse 9, the psalmist is talking, he's, he's putting words to what Jesus is going to do. And he says that zeal for your house has consumed me. Zeal for your house has consumed me. And the reproaches of those who reproach you have fallen on me. And what we're seeing in Mark chapter 11 is the very fulfillment of what is spoken hundreds of years earlier. Jesus is just filled with this holy sense of, 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 of righteous anger. And he has to change this. But we need to know what's at stake here. And what is at stake is the nations coming to worship God together. That's what's at stake. That's why this is such a serious matter for Jesus. That outer court, again, called the court of the Gentiles, was the place where people from any nation could come. If they believed in the God of Scripture, if they believed in Yahweh, they could come and they could make their sacrifice there as well. And these people that were selling the sacrifices excuse me, and, and, and offering the foreign exchange services, they were providing a service. They were helping people. It made sense for people to be able to buy their animal sacrifice there if they were traveling many, many miles. Instead of bringing something with them on the entire journey, they could buy it just there in Jerusalem. Jesus wasn't upset about that. That wasn't an issue. The issue was, is that it had come into the temple. And that was supposed to be a place for worship. That was supposed to be a place for prayer. And Jesus even says that as he's teaching them. He says, isn't it said that my house, my father's house, that it will be a place of prayer? That's why he's so angry. That's why he is so upset. And the word nations is really important in this. Because you imagine if you're coming and you're not of uh, the Jewish nation, and you're coming in there, and that's your place to go and worship. Like, here we are, we're gathered, you know, in this room. Here we are in the Shaw Center, and it's fairly quiet here. Imagine if I said right now, church, let's just stand up, and we're going to go to the food court, and I'm going to keep preaching in the food court, and then we're going to worship, right? Some of you might think initially, well, yeah, we, we, we're free to worship in a food court, and we are. God is just as present in a food court as he is in these four walls here. But we'd also be wise to recognize that there would be some logistical challenges to worshiping and to praying and to have preaching and, and these things in the food court. There's something about, at times, being able to be quiet, about being able to be reverent, just stopping and reflecting on the glory of God and on the good news of Jesus. So imagine in the temple, animals zipping around everywhere, Money changers doing their thing, calling out different exchange rates. It's thought that there was just exorbitant exchange rates that were being charged and people were being ripped off. This place of worship, this place of prayer had been turned into a place of commerce. And it's not that commerce is bad. It's that it was never supposed to happen there. Worship and prayer was supposed to happen there. That's what was at stake. And people that were coming in and that was their place to worship were being impeded from worship. And Jesus was determined to make sure that they were not being impeded from worship, that they were free to be able to come and worship and not be ripped off in the process, not be watching donkeys and goats and everything else running by, doing their business around them while they're trying to worship and while they're trying to pray. That was what was at stake. Now, the priests and the chief scribes, the religious rulers of the day, they're watching all of this happen, or they hear about it afterwards, in fact, And we read in Mark 11, verse 18, they heard of it and they were seeking a way to destroy 
Jesus. They were seeking a way to destroy him. Destroy. It's a big word. I don't know if you've ever felt like you want to destroy somebody, but there's something wicked that has to happen in your heart to think, I want to destroy them. Not just, I, I, I want to, they're, they're a pain. I just want to be in a different office. I just want to be in a different, you know, I, I just don't come, really want to be in their world, but I want to destroy them. We get a glimpse in a word, in a single word, of something that is happening in the religious ruling class at that time. Now, okay. Story about a fig tree, story about something going on in the temple. What in the world is the connection between the two? The connection between the two is this. If we think back to the fig tree story, Jesus being hungry, he goes up to the fig tree and he wants figs. And he sees that this fig tree is in full bloom. Now, I've had to read up on this. I'm not, I don't have green thumbs. I live in the center of Ottawa. Our garden is, is quite unkept, right? So I'm not, I'm not the leading botanical expert of the city. But I've been able to look in this and read on what different commentators and people have to say about this. And this is very key to understanding this. Fig trees, if they are in full bloom, if there are leaves covering a fig tree, there should be figs. There should be figs. Because fig trees produce their fruit and their leaves at roughly the same time. If not the exact same time, the, the, the figs would come shortly after. Now we know that this tree was in full bloom. There should have been figs on it. Jesus sees this tree in full bloom. He goes over to it. There should have been figs on it, and he finds that there are no figs on the tree. So what do we take from that? The fig tree was a liar. The fig tree was deceptive. The fig tree was dishonest. Honestly, that's why the fig tree got cursed. The fig tree looked like it was producing fruit, but there was no fruit on the fig tree. From a distance, Looking over on it, wow, look at that great fig tree. Imagine the fruit that must be on that tree. But on closer examination, there is no fruit. So it is dealt a curse by Jesus. Jesus then goes into the temple. And what does he see happening with the religious rulers and others that are abiding by their kind of philosophy and the way that they're going about things? He sees the exact same thing. He sees not just religious leaders in Jerusalem, but if you go back to some things that uh, Jeremiah and Hosea and other the Old Testament prophets say, the Old Testament prophets, when God spoke through them, in some cases would refer to Israel as a fig tree. So the disciples are watching this all play out, and they know that Jesus isn't just thinking about the religious leaders. He's actually making a point about, all of, about something happening in the wider culture in Israel at the time. We're looking at a distance, looking at what's going on from a distance. Oh, it looks very impressive. It looks very holy. It looks very pious. But on closer examination, really going in, there's nothing of fruit. There's nothing of substance. There's nothing that can satisfy hunger. Jesus is very much concerned with fruit. He's not tricked by outward appearances. You might think, well, didn't the fig tree kind of trick him? He walked over. No, Jesus knew exactly what was going on. He knew exactly what would play out. And friends, in your life and in mine, Jesus isn't tricked. He's very concerned with fruit, not just with the appearance of something that looks like it should be fruitful. With my own upbringing, it's very hard for me to talk about this without wanting to make a point about the culture that we live in today. And when I say culture that we live in today, I don't necessarily just mean the culture of our city or of our nation. I also want to refer to Christian culture today. It's very easy to be a Christian in a Western nation, certainly including here in Canada, and exist within a Christian bubble 
spend all your time listening to Christian radio, watching the, 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 you know, the Christian TV stations, reading all the Christian magazines, only ever listening to the Christian albums, reading the Christian publications, and going on and on and on. You can even go further. You can buy bracelets that have statements of faith on them, apparently. You can, you can buy fridge magnets. You can buy bumper stickers. You can buy all of this stuff, all of this Christian junk that looking at it from a distance all looks really holy. And it all looks really fruitful. Oh, that's nice. Those are nice words to live by. I think I might tweet that. Might Instagram that. Going to apply a little filter. Just change it up a little bit. But that sounds really good. I think I could live my life like that. It all looks really great from a distance. But on closer examination, very little of it, maybe some, but very little of it bears fruit. Very little of it is going to satisfy your hunger. Friends, it will leave you hungry. I've been around believers. I've been around people who have tried to live their Christian lives by just consuming things in the Christian culture around them, and they are starving. They are starving. In a few minutes, I'm going to tell you what alone can truly satisfy. But as I was preparing this talk, I had that section in my notes. I was feeling pretty good about it because that's part of my own story. I thought, oh, this is a good point to make. And then Matt Luard, who's on our preaching team, ruined it all for me because he said to me, he said, Rich, I get the point you're trying to make. Part of it is helpful. But you've got your sight set at the wrong target. It's not in the Christian culture. It's the human heart. That's where it starts. And he didn't say it to me over Slack, but he could have. He said, Rich, part of the problem is also in you. And it is. Because left to my own devices, and you left to your own devices, we are masters at putting on the external show, aren't we? I mean, we are masters of it. Those of you that have been in here and have been followers of Jesus for a while, you know how to go to church on a Sunday, and if you grew up in a youth group, how to go to the youth event. And if you're a guy, you know how to talk to the young girl in the super religious language. I just feel like God's telling me that we should be in a relationship together. <laughs> you know you know how to do all this stuff. This all sounds so holy. It all sounds so righteous. Where does that flow from? It flows from our heart because we are the masters of performance. We're the masters of putting on this show, but God cannot be fooled. He can't be fooled. He knows, and he's concerned with fruit. Is there fruit? And I, friends, I have this inside of me as well. I am not, please know, I am not pointing the finger to anyone in this room. This is something I walk with daily. I'm a church leader. I'm a church planter. Not every church leader gets to plant. I'm, I'm like, you, like, Christianity Today should be calling me soon for the interview because I'm a pretty impressive guy, right? No. No. Some of you might be fooled, maybe. Hopefully not. But God isn't. He knows me. He knows the depth of my heart. And he's concerned with fruit. He's concerned with having followers of Jesus that are bearing fruit. So that then, as we come to a close, that then leaves us with the question, how then do we bear fruit? How then do we avoid this thing? Rich, you've set this whole thing up. What's the answer? What's the an- Okay, so do I, like, Ten Commandments. Surely the Ten Commandments must be the answer. Just do, trying to do everything I can. Everybody I meet in the city, I'm going to tell them about Jesus. That, that must be the answer. That must be how I bear fruit. Well, maybe there's parts of that that might be applicable, but they're not the answers in themselves. This is what Jesus has to say in John chapter 15, verse 5. He says, I am the vine, you are the branches. Whoever abides in me and I in him, he it is that bears much fruit. For apart from me, you can do nothing. How is it that you bear fruit? It's by grace. 
It's by Jesus doing something in you because you are abiding in him. It's by grace. You can't muster it up in yourself. You can't tick all the right boxes yourself. You won't. You'll fail. This is something that God does in you. Your responsibility is to do all you can to abide in him and let him take care of the details. And friends, that's where the local church comes in. You can't abide in him on your own. You're not designed to abide in him on your own. God is not just interested in individuals. He's interested in a people. He's always been interested in a people. A people of his own possession, his own choosing. That's why we do this together. That's why when we talk about life groups, we do it with such passion. And we call them life groups because those are the stakes. It matters that much. We need help doing this. We need people around us encouraging us and graciously, graciously pointing out areas in our life where we might not be doing it. Not in a judgmental way, but graciously saying, hey, if you've given your life to Jesus, that that old part of you, that's dead. How can I help you and how can you help me live for the glory of him and abide in him together? It happens by grace. This is something that Jesus does. As the disciples, they're, they're going back towards Bethany. They see this fig tree on the return journey. What's happened to it is withered. This fig tree that Jesus curses, it's withered. And they're astonished seeing this. They don't quite know what to do with this. But teacher, look, look, look what happened to this fig tree. It's absolutely withered. It's gone. What are the first words out of Jesus' mouth? Have faith in God. It's almost like he's, he's answering a question that they didn't ask or referring to a situation that they're not even referring to themselves. Have faith in God. Friends, keeping in mind God being concerned with fruit and his followers bearing fruit. How is it that we bear fruit? We have faith in God. We have faith in God. It's God and his word who has said that if we abide in Christ, we will bear much fruit. It's God who in his word who has said, I'll never leave you. I won't forsake you. The most repeated command in scripture, you know what it is? Fear not. We can trust him. We can trust him. Have faith in God. So I'm saying this to every single one of us this morning. Relationship with Jesus or not, standing on a platform during the service this morning or not, doesn't matter. Friends, church, Grace City Church, this year and every year moving forward, let's have faith in God, knowing that his desire is for us to abide in his son and that that is where we will bear fruit. You know, God's been doing a lot of work on my heart over the past couple weeks in, in this area. I love the way that the timing works out for our preaching. You know, we're coming into the Shaw Center. I'm thinking, okay, we're in. We were in a room with a lot of, like, fluorescent lights. It's, it's, we've gone from common where there's, visually there's loads of stuff going on, and we're coming in a room right now that in some ways it can feel a little bit static. We're going to be making a few changes to the room as we go forward. But I had started to go down the road in my mind of thinking, well, these are all things that we need. We need lights, we need a backdrop. You know, you know, I ordered a pipe and drape system from Illinois, all right, from Illinois a few weeks ago. It's going to go behind the stage. They sent a pipe and drape system, and they forgot to send the pipes, all right? So it's like going and buying a new car and them going, oh, sorry, we forgot the wheels. We're going to have to send those on a little bit later. So that's all coming a little while later, all right? And we're going to be looking over time. There are different lights that we want to get. It's never going to be a huge, huge setup. But for me, I started thinking, well, I need to put my faith in these things, essentially, is what I was thinking. But God's really been doing work on me as I've been preparing this sermon because how will this church grow? How will this church bear fruit? Having faith in God and abiding in Jesus. That's how. You know how many times Emily, who leads our worship team here, you know how many times she's asked me about the pipe and drape system and about lighting and about stage things? You want to know how many times she's asked me? Zero. 
she is so the woman for this job. <laughs> she gets it. Okay? She gets it. She knows that worship, this is a matter of the heart. When she stands up here and leads you in worship and the team that she's leading, she is interested in your heart. She's not interested in the bells and whistles. And you know what? Some of those bells and whistles are fine. We're going to add a few bells and whistles, not literally bells. Or do not come to church with a bell or a whistle next week. We're going to add some things. And those things are fine. But it's the heart of worship that God is concerned with. There may be other things that will serve us and will help us along the way. But they can never become primary. They can never become what it's about. It's about hearts that desire Jesus and that want to abide in him. Jesus is wanting to have his hunger satisfied uh, by, the, by the fig tree. You know, we were talking this morning about pursuing different things in culture, even in Christian culture, that can leave us hungry. It's Jesus and Jesus alone who can truly satisfy us. There's this incredible exchange that happens in, John, in chapter 4. Jesus is chatting with a woman at a well. He wasn't even supposed to be talking to her culturally. Jesus just smashes over that barrier. And he's having this conversation with this woman at the well, a well with water. Jesus then says something to her that just intrigues her. He doesn't quite know what to do with it. Jesus says, everyone who drinks of this water, the water in the well, will be thirsty again. But whoever drinks of the water that I will give him will never be thirsty again. The water that I will give him will become in him a spring of water welling up to eternal life. The woman said to him, sir, give me this water so that I will not be thirsty or have to come here to draw water. In Jesus and in Jesus alone will your hunger and will your thirst be fully satisfied. This morning, come to the one who can satisfy your hunger. What are you hungry for this morning? What is it that you want of him this morning? What is it that you're longing for when all the fancy stuff, the, 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 you know, the, the distracting stuff is all stripped away? What is it that you're asking of him this morning? You know the one, you are coming to the one this morning whose heart's desire is to satisfy your hunger and to satisfy your thirst, that you would never be thirsty again, that you would never hunger again. And here is the incredible thing. You know one of the things that Jesus said when he was on the cross? I thirst. The Son of God, the perfect Lamb of God, going to the cross in our place, saying, I thirst, being given a vat of vinegar. It's not going to satisfy thirst. Him walking that in your place and in mine so that we would never have to say to God, I thirst and not be satisfied. Because he went to the cross in our place, we will never have to say that thinking, well, it's never going to come. I'm always going to be thirsty. It's his delight to satisfy our thirst and our hunger. I'm going to invite Emily and Kelly to come and get set up. We're going to worship together. I've just been speaking about Jesus on the cross. To the left and the right of the room, we have our communion tables. If you're here this morning and you have a relationship with Jesus, whether Grace City is your home church or not, uh, we would love for you to uh, take this meal with us this morning. There's bread and there's wine and the grape juice. And uh, the bread represents Jesus' body being broken for us. I deserved to be on that cross. Jesus went in my place. You deserve to be there. Jesus went in your place. And you can receive him by faith even this morning for the very first time and be counted as part of the family of God. Here in this room, here in the Shaw Center, you can become a son or daughter of God this morning. You want to know more about that? Come find me. Come find anybody serving this morning. We would be delighted to chat with you more about that. So during this first song, it's Man of Sorrows, is that right? It's just a great song to focus us on Jesus and what he's done on the cross. Come, come to the tables. Take 
the bread representing his body. Take the wine or the grape juice, whichever one your conscience leads you to, and enjoy taking this with us, knowing that that represents Jesus' blood being spilt for you so that you would never thirst and that you would know life and life eternal. I say it a lot of weeks, but friends, let's, can we worship this morning? Like, let's worship. There's no lights. There's no, it's not a big impressive setup. Let's worship this God this morning. Why don't you stand with us?